Before we get into the message this morning, it's a good-looking family, right? Yeah, I think a pretty good-looking family. Will the Golden stand up? Um, this is our daughter Bethany, her husband Steve, and their daughter Genevieve Golden. They've just moved back here from northern Kentucky. Steve's going to be going to Washburn Nursing School. Bethany will be working at Saints in the pain management clinic. And so for right now, they're shacking up with us till they can get a place of their own, and we're thrilled to have them back. I asked Steve from last Sunday when they were here how many people he knew, and he thought maybe a third. So Steve left, did we say five years ago? Five years ago, Bethany and her sisters left six, seven years ago. So many of you are unknown to them and vice versa, so I hope you'll introduce yourselves. They'd love to get you to know you, and you'll love to know them too. So guys, thanks. And I think they're going to leave. Woo! So we know you're a group of distinction and taste because you clapped for them. So, well done. Hey, on to the message, guys, this morning. <clears throat> Thinking of families and family members, I, I use my own family of origin semi-regularly in introductions or examples, and I'm going to do so again this morning. I'm one of 11 kids, and I'm number six, so I had five siblings that were older than me. And two of those were brothers. So the oldest in my family was Joseph, and he was eight years my senior. By the way, we have the perfect baby boom generation. My oldest brother was born in 48. My youngest sister was born in 64. So we began, we closed the baby boom generation. Um, my parents were not careless Protestants like some of you might be. They were Roman Catholics. So my oldest brother's name is Joseph. Can you guess what the oldest daughter's name was? Mary. Yes, Joseph and Mary. Uh, Joe, eight years older. John, the next brother I had that was older than me, was three years, almost three years older than me. That doesn't sound like a lot, but you know when your kids are little, three years is actually a pretty good lag time. John and I didn't hang out when we were growing up. He was the youngest of the first half of the family. I was the oldest of the second half of the family. And the three years were enough of a difference that he had his friends, his life, his world. I hung out with my younger brother, Patrick, just about a year and a half younger than me. We did a lot of things together, but not John and I. That separation of time and age uh, really had a pivotal role in the way we interacted. And generally... What I found as I grew was that uh, John had a way of uh, speaking order into my chaos, basically of calling Mike to account. So he, we didn't do a lot together, but usually if we were interacting, he was reproving me in one way or another. I used to give one of my younger sisters a bad time about the musicians she adored and the music she liked until John pointed out to me, he said, well, Mike, you do the same thing just to different musicians and different styles of music. And I thought, that's true. And I quit giving my younger sister a hard time. Uh, we were all in Boy Scouts so that we could go on scouting trips, hike and camp and all that good stuff. And we were at a camp not far from Topeka one time, and I was abusing a frog. And if you've ever heard this, it's like rabbits and frogs can actually be quite loud, and they are high-pitched shrieks. So <clears throat> my brother is across John's, across the pond from me, and I'm a lowly scout, and he's the head of our scouting group, as well as my older brother. And so he yelled at me from across the pond. He didn't say Mike. It was Michael. And it was one of those moments where 
It was like heavens opened and God had just called my name. You know, I was caught in the moment, quit with the frog. You know, what are you doing? My, you know, yeah, yeah, you're right. That was the role he played in my life. It was basically to reprove me, to call me to account. My brother Joe's uh, interaction I had with him growing up was really minimal when we were in our home together. Eight years is a lifetime, you know, for kids that age. But when I got a little older and I was a teenager and into my early 20s before I got married, Joe lived in the glories of northwest Montana, just about seven miles from Canada, about 15 miles from Glacier National Park. And he had told me, if you ever want to come live with us, the door's open. And so I took him up on it. And so I lived with he and his family for a couple of years. And so my interaction with him was primarily framed around uh, hunting together, fishing together, learning carpentry, working on old trucks together. And I had a great time, and my life was really enlarged because of that adult relationship I had with Joe. Still, Actually, still informs a lot of what I do today. So I had, growing up, I had two older brothers that had formative impact on me in my life. I was not much of a younger brother, and as far as an older brother to my younger siblings, just worthless entirely far too selfish, far too self-centered to really even be thinking about what impact might I be having on those beneath me. I say all this as we go into 1 Timothy 5 this morning in our God's House series because it's really dealing this morning with how do members of the family of God, the body of Christ, how do we as family interact with our older brothers? our older siblings in the faith who are leaders in that local expression of the church, the household of God. What does that look like? And specifically, Paul's letter to Timothy, remember Timothy's representing him in the church at Ephesus, and he brings up three things having to do with the way the church, siblings in the body of Christ, interacted with their older brothers, the elders and deacons, formal leaders in the local church, specifically around these three issues. How should elders be supported by the local church financially, materially? How should elders and deacons be called to account? What do you do when someone in leadership in the church is doing something that's out of line? How do we go about that? And then also, when should brothers in the body be recognized formally as leaders? Talked about that a little bit earlier in chapter 3, but he brings that up again this morning. So in chapter 3, if you remember, we talked about if someone's, if an older brother is going to be recognized as an elder or deacon, their life has to be exemplary. They have to be above reproach. They're a grown-up, mature version of what Christ-like transformation in each of us looks like. That was all a given. But it's here in chapter 5, if you remember going back to the beginning of the chapter, Paul telling Timothy, Think of, interact with those older women and men in the church like they are your mothers or fathers. Show them that kind of care or respect. And he said, when you're interacting with peers, treat them like your siblings, brothers and sisters in the faith. Do you remember we talked about widows, those women who have lost husbands, how to interact with them redemptively because they are your sisters in the faith and or your mothers in the faith. So here he switches gears and he says, now in that family context, these are things to take into account in interacting with the older brothers in that local expression of God's home, the elders and the deacons typically, the, those who serve in the pastoral roles in the local church on these three things, material support, 
accusations and care in installing new leaders. So guys, we are in 1 Timothy 5. We're going to jump in right at verse 17. And we'll treat each of these separately. We'll, we'll take one, one uh, subject and then follow that with another. So starting at verse 17, regarding material support of elders, Paul wrote, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And the laborer deserves his wages. Just a comment on that. Paul says this is what the Scriptures say. And what that last phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, is actually Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So Paul puts Luke's Gospel on the same foundation as the book of Deuteronomy. He says they are both God's Word. They're both Scripture. So, those who lead well, Paul says, are worthy of double honor. And we'll get to honor in a minute related to material support, but those who rule well, and it's not the thought of, it's not kings, right? Older brothers as kings, but it's those who oversee the life of the church. Those who are looking over, who are superintending, who are presiding over, and they're doing it, that term well is kalos, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago. When Paul told Timothy, you'll be a good servant, it was that same word. In chapter 4, I think it was verse 6. You'll be, a good ser- you'll be an excellent servant. You'll be a virtuous servant. And here he says, he's distinguishing apparently, some of your leaders may not lead with excellence. Some of those older brothers may not display virtue in their leadership. But those who do, he says, are worthy of support. And he says, he qualifies support by saying double honor. They're worthy of double honor. Do you remember when we talked about widows? Honor meant material or financial support, just like it did in the Gospels related from children to aging parents. So here Paul says, those who rule well in the local church are worthy of You don't have to multiply times two, double honor. But it's this elevated level of support, not just respect, but material or financial support. And he qualifies that again at verse 17 when he says, especially those who primarily serve in preaching and teaching roles. You guys know that the bigger the churches get, the the more leadership structure is required. And so what you'll often see is, in larger churches, both in New Testament times or today, you might find elders that primarily shepherd, we would say counsel others, full-time. Or in some churches that are large enough, there will be someone who's called an administrative pastor. He's not teaching and he's probably not generally meeting with others one-on-one. He's just making sure that all the parts of the church are working together. So there's different kinds of expressions of leadership for elders, for pastors, for shepherds. Here Paul singles out those who serve in preaching and teaching, and it appears to be to go along some line like this. Do you remember way back in chapter 1 that when Paul told Timothy, I'm leaving you in Ephesus to, to speak correctively to this church because some things are out of order. And one of the things that was out of order was the things that were being taught. And in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and again in chapter 4, Paul said, some people are teaching heterodoxy, things that they should not teach that the church doesn't believe. 
Other people are focusing on genealogies and myths. Worthless stuff that's not worth talking about in the church. You remember back in chapter 4, Paul said some teachings are teachings from demons. And so in that context, he says, not only give material support to those who lead well, but especially those in that teaching role that are opposing the kind of erroneous teaching that at least some leaders and perhaps some other elders were spreading in this church. Uh, Philip Towner in his commentary says it this way, all faithful elders have, he says in quotes, earned their pay, but especially in the context of a battle with heresy, those equipped to preach and teach who have persisted in teaching the apostolic faith receive even more recognition. So in a list of do's and don'ts here, And this is what you see throughout this section. Paul says, do these things related to older brothers, leaders. Don't do these things. Paul says this, provide generously for those leading the church in an exemplary fashion with virtue or with excellence. On your study sheet, you have some verses we're not going to go into, but the 1 Corinthians 9 passage, verses 1 through 14, is the longest treatment of the church family supporting leadership. You can look at that later. Galatians 6.6 6 talks about those who are taught, sharing with those who teach. But there's a rich biblical example and teaching on this. Guys, in Lion and Lamb, um, my family's received support from this church full-time for about four years, and we've always been generously supported by the church. So I thank you for that. And as among leadership, we try to walk that prudent line in being generous with those who serve this church part-time college fellowship and our administrative assistant, generous on one hand, but also prudent in giving account to you guys who contribute to those expenses and also ultimately to the Lord. So we're trying to operate within the kind of sphere Paul talks about here, supporting those who lead with excellence, doing so generously and also prudently. So that has to do with supporting older brothers financially who are serving in the local household. The next thing he brings up has to do with accusing or bringing charges against older brothers who are in that formal leadership position. You see this in verses 19 through 21. So Paul says here, don't admit a charge, we might say an accusation, against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. For those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. If you put yourself in the setting in which this letter was received for just a second, the church knows that Timothy is there because there are issues. And Paul says, Tim, there's issues in that church. You need to stay there. You need to set that house in order. And some of that has to do with reproving elders, formal leaders, older brothers in the faith. And you can imagine if everyone in the church knows some of our elders are out of line, accusations or charges might start flowing freely and fast. We might bear old grudges against one of those older siblings, or we might not like one thing or another that they've done. And so Paul says here, uh, any accusation, any charge against an, an elder, a leader, isn't okay. Only some kinds. And here he qualifies that by saying, if there are two or three people who can validate or verify 
a notable concern, that concern should be brought to the other leaders. You know, sometimes just between us, uh, if I sin against you, Scripture tells you to come to me face to face. Or if you did the same to me, totally apart from leadership roles, right? Matthew 18, if your brother sins going, tell him because you want reconciliation in the shortest distance possible. This is a little different. It involves a leader in the church, and it may have nothing to do with some personal offense against you. It may be something you know a leader is doing towards someone else or in some financial affairs or whatever. But in that setting, Paul says accusations against leaders should not be entertained if they can't be substantiated, if they can't be verified. So if a charge is brought against an elder, there has to be at least two or three to validate that there's a genuine need and concern that should be addressed. Once that's been done, this would mean two or three would come and they would come to the elders, the other brothers, who are older brothers who are overseeing the church, and they would express that concern. And in that context, the other leaders and those who know what's going on would call that older brother to repentance, to change whatever that issue was going on that needs to be spoken to. And hopefully the matter would end there. So a substantiated claim is brought. Those who know come and they share with the other leaders that brother is confronted. Hopefully it ends there. If it's not, and it isn't always, the church was to reprove that errant brother, that brother who has not listened to the concerns of the other leaders and the charges that have been brought, is to be reproved publicly before the rest of the church. Has anyone here ever seen that done, by the way? We don't see that done, do we? Usually what happens here is sometimes churches operate on a business model, right? And if you have a leader who's out of line, especially if he's staff, if he's supported by the church, what do you do when he gets out of line? You fire him, right? Because it's a business model. We, we have slots we're filling. I, I may, this may sound a little colder than it, other churches would say, but it, it can look like a business model. We're filling roles. You've blown it, and we simply fire you. And that's not what you see here. You see the family setting here. Somebody's out of line. They're a brother. They're an older brother. They have responsibility but we're confronting them in love. If they don't listen to that private confrontation, then we, we bring that out to the whole church. This is always for the, for the cause of restoration. We don't, we don't quit loving them. We don't quit caring about them. All of this is done in love and concern. Uh, guys, there's an example of this biblically, and there's a practical one I want to share with you. Do you guys remember what, what occurred in Galatians chapter 2? So Peter and Paul are the two key apostles in the early church, right? Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. These are the two heavy hitters. These are the top of the top leaders, apostles in the early church. And in Galatians 2, you've got this weird setting. Because Peter, a Jewish Christian, has been hanging out in the Gentile churches in Galatia, and he's been eating with them. This probably means he's not eating a kosher diet. He's not keeping the Jewish law. Maybe he's eating in Gentile homes with them too. But Peter's treating the Gentile Christians like they're, imagine that, brothers and sisters in the household of faith. Such a concept. But what happens when guys come up from Jerusalem? They follow James and they're probably, their point of view is probably that if you're a Jewish believer in Yeshua, in Jesus, you should keep the law. The Gentiles don't need to. This all goes into the history of the church. Acts 15 addresses this. 
So when these guys come up from Jerusalem, you remember Peter generally sins when he's fearful. When these guys come up, Peter pulls away from the Gentile Christians. And he's a leader in the church and everyone sees this. In fact, Paul says, even Barnabas got caught up in Peter's hypocrisy. This is devastating because this is telling some siblings in the household of faith, you're not really our brothers and sisters. And so Paul publicly reproves Peter. He rebukes him in front of all. Not because he doesn't love him, not because he doesn't esteem him, but because this needs to be addressed by everybody who's seen this so that everybody's back on the same page. Jews and Gentiles are one body, one family in the body of Christ. And think about this. So Peter's publicly rebuked. Did he quit being an apostle? He writes letters after this that we read today as God's Word. Did Paul and Peter have a falling out so that they don't love each other, care about each other after this? This is the beginning and the end of the issue as far as the Scriptures are concerned. But public reproof to set things right. And this, of course, allows Peter then to continue to be an older brother and a leader, but appropriately. Guys, there's a current example of this too. Depending on what you read, you may or may not be aware of this, but a Darren Patrick's a very well-known pastor. He started a church in St. Louis 10 or 20 years ago called The Journey. It's a multi-campus, multiple thousands of people there every Sunday. Darren Patrick's an author. He's a well-known speaker around the country. And he was uh, terminated by his board of elders at The Journey Church uh, just last month, within the last month. And basically, they made all of this public. He's a very public figure and they made this public. But this is what they said publicly. They said, we have been confronting the board of elders that love our brother, Darren Patrick. We've been confronting Darren for two years. Not on immorality issues, not on financial issues, but on pride, on being domineering and manipulative. For two years, we've been privately confronting him. And he hasn't responded. And so we're removing him from leadership. The church at this point, they didn't designate how long a time, but the church continues to financially support he and his family. My suspicion is long term, he'll be back in full-time service. That's my suspicion. He then publicly said also, I love my fellow older brothers, elders. I know they've absolutely been loving and patient with me. I don't think they're out of line. And I really appreciate them. So here in the context of the body of Christ, siblings calling a brother to account, it's going nowhere. So they just say, you know what, at this point, it's simply not prudent or wise for you to be filling this role. And he's free to say, thank you. And the church, at least for now, continues to support him. They're not pitching him out. But that's a contemporary example of this kind of confrontation. So, on the do's and don'ts related to this, look at what Paul says, starting with the don'ts here. He says, first, remember, related to accusing an older brother, a leader in the church, he says, don't act on an accusation if it's not substantiated. You've got a couple of verses on your study sheet. God always required in these kinds of things that facts be established. And the standard for that was at least two or three people need to be aware of this issue. That they can say credibly, this is what's going on. Don't do that, he says. And he says, don't act prejudicially. 
you know, occasionally you might have a situation in a church where someone in the church accuses a well-respected leader. And our first thought might be, there's no way that's true. But Paul says, don't prejudge. Let all the facts be stated. Gather all the information. We might assume the best or the worst, none of which matters. Paul says, verify the facts. Don't just jump to conclusions. And then he says, do, do confront a leader if there are at least two or three witnesses to corroborate that charge and do rebuke in the presence of the rest of the household of faith those who have refused to respond adequately to that private censure. So a little uncomfortable, but that's what Scripture says to do. So related to reproving an older brother. And the last of the three here has to do with commissioning. Who do we say, among older brothers in the household of faith, who do we say you're officially recognized as a leader, an elder or a deacon in some oversight role? Paul says this starting at verse 22. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be in a hurry to appoint someone a leader in the church. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't take part in the sins of others by appointing them to leadership hastily. Think about this for just a second. If I give your child who's underage alcohol and they get in a wreck, the police come looking for me. Why? Because I'm an accomplice in what occurred. Because I have given someone something I shouldn't have given them. And it's resulted in harm. The same would be true if I gave my keys to my car to someone who shouldn't be driving and they're in a wreck. They're looking, how did you get the keys to that car? Mike gave them to me. Mike's an accomplice. Mike has been part of the harm that's fallen out. And that's what Paul says here. That if a church, if church leaders approve someone to formal leadership in a hasty manner, before they know what kind of a person this really is, If that person is getting involved for what they can do, what they can get out of it, and they end up bringing harm to the church, Paul says the other leaders share that harm. They share the responsibility for that harm. This should cause all of us to think twice about being in a hurry to recognize leaders. Paul says don't do it. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be hasty. Verse 23, we'll treat in just a second, says no longer drink only water. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In this list you're saying, Paul, why did you say that here? It's like it's an afterthought. You guys know when this, these letters were being drafted, Paul is speaking, he's not writing. Can you imagine Paul speaking and the guy's writing it down? And something comes to his mind, he says, oh, by the way, Tim, well, this thing, and now I'll get back to the issue. And we'll get back to the issue here, verse 24. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So here Paul says, don't be in a hurry to commission new guys to leadership. Don't be in a hurry at all. You saw this earlier in chapter 3, verse 10, where he said deacons should first be tested and then commissioned. They've proven their faithfulness. Then they're commissioned officially as leadership in the local church. And at verses 24 and 25, that that lag time, somebody comes into the church and on the front end, everything appears great. Paul says, some sins you see right away, but others you don't. 
And so you want enough time there that, that this person that you're thinking about for leadership, you know them well enough so that the sins that can be discoverable have been. doesn't mean that they won't ultimately be able to serve as a leader, but we're aware of all that going in. How many here, by the way, serve uh, in ministry safe? How many here are ministry safe approved in Lion and Lamb? Okay, so a third or so. We, we ask regularly, right, for volunteers in Lion and Lamb to serve minors. And by that we mean it's nursery, it's primary Sunday school, it's mosaic up through high school. But when we ask folks to serve there, we tell them on the front end, you cannot serve until you've been at Lion and Lamb at least six months. And we have to have a verifiable date when that six months started. Because we want to know the folks we're giving our little kids to. That makes sense, doesn't it? We're giving someone else the treasure of our life, this infant, this little child. We want to know that person. So we say, you've got to be here at least six months. And that same thing applies to leaders. You can't lead home groups here. You can't teach unless you've been here a minimum of six months. Longer would be the norm, but it's just to say we don't want to be in a hurry about giving care of some of us to others who should not have that responsibility. So our minimum is six months in any of that. So on the don'ts and do's here related to commissioning officially for service, Paul says, don't commission others without really knowing them. Spending enough time to really know them. And do give that adequate time so that we're aware of each other's faults and what might come up later. Back to verse 23 for just a minute. This afterthought. Paul's rolling along talking about commissioning leaders. And then he tells Tim, drink some wine. We're, we're, in, we're sort of implying some things in our own mind about what might be going on. Remember that we know that some in leadership, not only teaching, but probably in other ways of their life, they're not living up to the standard they should. Perhaps some of them are abusing alcohol. And when you read in the list of qualifications in chapter 3, they can't be someone who abuses wine. That's for both elders and deacons. Maybe some are. And so in that context, uh, Timothy is not taking any alcohol. And to him, Paul says, you need to drink some wine for your stomach issues. Now, we might say today, you need to take your Tums or your Mylanta or whatever it is we take if our stomach is out of sorts. Notice too, just for a second, Paul doesn't censure Timothy for being ill or sick and he doesn't tell him you don't have enough faith to be healed. And Paul the healer doesn't heal Timothy either. He tells him to use the medicine at hand and to take common sense precautions for his own health and his frequent ailments. Sometimes God intervenes in our life, right? And we pray and we ask, God, heal us. And he doesn't. And then he says, take your Mylanta or whatever. Take the medicine that's available. And that's what you see here too. So back to these three points, you've got Paul talking about the church's relationship, interaction with older brothers. He says, support those who lead well so they're free to lead. He says, reprove elders and leaders when the charges against them are substantiated. They're verified. And he says, take time before commissioning someone for leadership. Now guys, let me ask, this is the last of the series related to the interaction we have with each other. The last two Sundays that we'll cover, Timothy, are on separate subjects entirely. Why, why does God, through Paul, why does he take the time to talk about all these relational issues in this church? 
what, what's at stake for God here and what's at stake for us here? You remember, we're talking about older men, they're like your fathers. Older women, they're like your mothers. Your siblings to each other. You're caring for widows. You're interacting through these ways with older brothers. What's, what's behind all of this? Because this could just be a yawn and a bore, right? I say, I like the leaders. There's no issue there for me. And I get along with everybody else. Why does, why does this matter? Why does this care? Uh, when we were raising our girls, we had certain rules for them. And some of them went like this. Your sisters are your best friends. Your sisters will be your best friends. It's not an option. It's not debatable. Your sisters are your best friends. You will include your sisters when you do these things. You will share. You will take turns. Why did Mike and Kathy tell their daughters those things repeatedly? Those were some of our rules. Why was that? It's because we loved each one of our daughters, right? We loved each one of our daughters. And we loved them equally. We didn't love one above another. And so our requirement on them was that the way they interacted with each other reflected our love and care for each one. And that's exactly what you see going on here. That God the Father has set His love on every one of His children. And He says, guys, in my household, the way you treat each other is meant to reflect the love I have for my children. So we're not free to diss someone else in the church because that someone else is God's child. And God loves them as much as He loves me or you. And so all of these relational criteria go down to the fact that God loves His children. And He requires that His children interact with each other in a way that reflects His love and His care for each one of us. That's where this lands, on the rationale. You know, Jesus was an older brother. He was a perfect older brother. Think about a few elements of his life, though. In his role as a son and an older brother. Just go through a list here with me. So, Jesus was misunderstood by his mother back in Luke 2. Do you remember she reproves him? Junior, we, we didn't find you. Where were you? Why did you distress us? And he just says, well, Mom, you should have known I would have been in my father's house. She reproves him. She doesn't understand. He was despised by his younger siblings in John 7. They say, you really want to be known. They didn't believe in Him. text is clear. Go down to Jerusalem so everybody can see you because you're all that and that's what you want. So you go on down there. He was considered out of his mind by his entire family in Mark 3. The guy has lost his mind. We need to go down and save him from himself. You know, later at the end, he's accused falsely in Mark 14. He was accused falsely. The God who gives us these rules was accused falsely. Yet, he prayed for his brothers in faith. Think of Peter and the apostles. Jesus knows they're going to betray him. They're going to forsake him. And he prays for them anyway before it occurs. From the cross in pain that you and I will never know, and there's no way our imaginations can get there, when he's hanging on the cross, he makes provision for his mother. John 19, saying to John, Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. That's how he took care of his mom, even in his death. After his resurrection through the Holy Spirit, at least, we know, at least two of the brothers who didn't believe in him earlier, they come to faith, right? Because James, in Acts 15, that's James, Jesus' half-brother. And Jude, who wrote Jude's epistle, is Jesus' half-brother also. Mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9 also. 
He forgives his accusers, Luke 23, from the cross. He models what older brothers are meant to look like. Not just older brothers, but siblings as well. A model for all of us. Now on this front, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit because we're on this issue, the last issue dealing with the way we interact with each other. If I tell you this is the way we should treat each other, do this, don't do that. That might simply sound like moralistic, legalistic rules keeping. And that has nothing to do where this is going. So two things. Jesus is always the standard. That's a given. But guys, none of us can love the Father and love and care for siblings, older or otherwise, in the household of faith, first, unless we're in the household of faith. That comes from spiritual rebirth. And spiritual rebirth having occurred, the other thing is you can't live this way if you are not actively choosing to live in the good of the new nature you and I receive through virtue of that new birth. So entertain me for just a minute. I assume in pretty much every church setting that some of us haven't had that moment yet when we know we passed from death to life. If you haven't been born again, that's out of John 3.3. 3. If you haven't been born again, guys, you're not in God's family. And none of this applies to you. If you haven't been born again, you remain a member of the kingdom of darkness and Satan is the one who rules over your life. And none of this stuff matters. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. Work through some of these with me and see if these apply to you. Have you ever come to a point in your life when you've seen your efforts as ultimately deficient so that you quit trying to be better or good enough to be approved by God? Where you get that everything I do is tainted by sin in one fashion or another. Isaiah, I think it's 64, says, All of my righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Have we ever come to that point? That might be, by the way, might include the ways we've treated brothers and sisters and family of origin. Might be the way we've treated brothers and sisters in the family of God. Those who are members already in the household of faith. Have we accepted the hard reality of Jesus' own words that unless we're born again, we do not see the kingdom of heaven. We are not in God's family. We are not God's children if we haven't been born again. John 3, Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Have we taken Jesus at His words that anyone who would come to Him would not be cast out? No one will ever accuse Jesus that He didn't do enough to save them. Will not happen. John 6, I think it's verse 37, says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will not cast out. If you come to Christ, He'll bring you in. He'll accept you. He'll welcome you into God's family. Have we trusted God to save us from the penalty of sin by what Jesus did for us on the cross? Sin-bearing role on the cross and then His resurrection. If we've done that, if we've had that singular moment where we realize God's holy and I'm not. Jesus died to save me and He's my ticket. He is my means of forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, membership into the family of God. Then we're born again. Then we are God's sons and daughters. We are siblings to each other in the household of faith. We have a future and a hope that's glorious now and later. But guys... There's another point of that too, and it's this. You know, the first story of brothers in the Bible is not a happy story. Back in Genesis 4, 
first brothers in the Bible mentioned are Cain and Abel. And what did older brother Cain do to younger brother Abel? He murdered him. He killed him. You remember, he didn't like the fact that his brother was approved, and he wasn't. The old sinful nature that you and I have by birth, it's like Cain. And it's a murderer. And it's willing to talk down other people and to, to assassinate their character and to throw or hurl accusations at them and to not care how we're interacting with them. That's our old sinful nature. It's just like Cain. That's what we bring. The new nature that we have by virtue of rebirth is like Abel. It's a worshiper of God. It's a blessing to the family around it. But guys, every day and every moment, you and I are making a decision of whether we walk out that old sinful self, Cain, or whether we walk in the beauty and the wholeness and the virtue of that new sinless nature we have through rebirth. We've got to be born again if we're going to love others in the body of Christ. And then we've got to say no to that old sinful self like Cain and yes to that new Christ nature in us like Abel. It's a day-by-day thing. It's not hoops to jump through. It's a way of life because we're new creations in Christ. And the rest of that's a theme for another day for sure. So, the love, the respect, the care we show for each other is because we are children of God through rebirth and because we are siblings in the household of God and because we're walking in the good of that new nature that is ours by virtue of faith in Jesus. Father, thanks for saving us through Christ, Your Son, the apple of Your eye. Lord, You commissioned, You laid hands on Him, You sent Him to earth for our sake to atone for our sins and to rise, Lord, for our justification. Would You help us to walk in the good of that, either for the first time in coming into faith, coming into Your family through accepting the work of Jesus in His person, or Lord, simply in the day-by-day discipline of refusing to walk in the old king nature and walking in the new instead. And Father, would You energize us to declare Your praises richly for all You've done for us in Christ. Amen.